The second reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. It's on page 472 in the Blue Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, you're very welcome to take that home with you as a gift from us. Okay, here we go. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, I know we normally call him John the Baptist, and the Bible (coughs) calls him John the Baptist, so we should rightly call him that. And well, he baptized people, so it, it makes sense. And I like the name, particularly because we're a Baptist church. And so uh, it suggests that John shares our theology of baptism, which he does, by the way, and we'll soon see that. But I think it can give a false idea, the name John the Baptist, of what his core message and purpose was. Because, you see, John was a doomsday preacher. And so I think we should call him that. That's why I've titled this sermon that. John the Doomsday Preacher. Now we have uh, no shortage of such doomsday preachers these days, do we? From climate change to nuclear war, you don't have to look hard to find people telling us that the end is nigh. Does it feel like doomsday to you? Or are you a doomsday preacher? Do you even want to be? For the last few decades, most evangelical Christians have moved away from wanting to say, turn or burn. I heard on an ad a few years ago on Christian radio that said exactly that. It was something like, you know, how do you evangelize? I mean, you don't want to say to people, turn or burn. But why wouldn't you want to say that? If John is okay with saying that, 
Why aren't we? Now, I understand that we should know the people around us and and give them the best chance of hearing and responding to the gospel. I get it. Turn or burn really most often just turns people off what you're saying. But if it is true that unless you turn, you will burn, then why would you not at least want to tell somebody that? John is certainly aware of the fire to come, and he knows what his listeners need to do in response. In each of the four main movements of this profile of John, in the first 12 verses of chapter 3 in Matthew, there is a reference to repenting or confessing four times. I hope that as we consider John's preaching this morning, we might assess our own response to the doomsday that is coming. We'll explore each of these movements through four headings. One, repent. Two, be baptized. Three, bear fruit. And four, in Jesus. Let's have our Bibles and hearts open as we hear from the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Let's begin with our first first movement, repent. So for the first two chapters of Matthew, and as we've seen over the last few weeks, the story so far has been all about Jesus. Gives us his backstory, his birth story, his his flight to Egypt, his return. And now, taking the focus off Jesus for a bit, Matthew takes us on a little bit of a side quest for all you gamers out there. Now, John the Baptist isn't the main character of Matthew's gospel, but he's one of the more important supporting characters. Let's read from verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You might remember from last week that Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, was in the region of Judea. But when Joseph came back from Egypt, he was afraid of Herod Archelaus, so he took his family north to Nazareth in the region of Galilee. It's some 100 kilometers or so separate from those two. And so uh, back in the region of Judea, closer to where Jesus was born than where he grew up in Nazareth, this is where John the Baptist begins his ministry. And he begins it, not in any city, but in the wilderness. In the wilderness, if you're not sure what wilderness is, it's basically like a desert. Not, not necessarily desert, but, but similar kind of vibe. You know, it's where nobody lives. And that's, you know, that's why we all came to Darwin, right? We, we just want to be like John the Baptist in the wilderness, preaching. Notice what verse 1 says about what John is doing. You notice it doesn't say, John the Baptist came baptizing. Does it say that? No. What does it say? John the Baptist came preaching. That's right. He came preaching. And it's such a fascinating first sentence because if he came preaching, then why would he go to the wilderness? I mean, is, is he preaching to the rocks? Is he preaching to the locusts before he eats them? Repent before you're in my stomach. But we'll get to that in verse 3. But look at his message in verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, kids, can any of you tell me, what does repent mean? 
Give it a go. Confess that you did something and ask for forgiveness. Turn away from sin. Yeah, that's right. You've both gotten components of, of that. That's right. To confess and to turn away from your sin, to turn around, to go back the other way. Now, perhaps some of you have heard that repent actually means to change your mind. You heard that before? Well, there's actually some truth to that. The literal translation of the original Greek word, metanoia, basically means to change your thinking. That's what the principal parts of that word means. But the Bible and other Greek texts from this time often use this term to mean not just changing your mind, but to turn around, to change your direction. So to illustrate the difference, I've recently changed my mind about jackfruit. I've decided it's not as terrible as I've believed it to be my entire life. I don't love it, but now I just don't hate it. And I've, I've changed my mind on that. But you wouldn't say, well, I have repented of hating jackfruit my entire life. All right? Though some of you might think that I should be repenting of that change. <laughs> so when John says repent, he's not just saying you need to change your thinking. He's not just saying you need to change your ideas about God. No, he's telling you, Turn around. You must change the course of your life. This is most clearly expressed in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, where Peter actually connects the ideas in the one response. When the, when the crowds ask him, what should we do? He says, repent, therefore, and turn back. And throughout Scripture, as we see in these verses, what we are supposed to repent from is clear. Our sin. John gives a very clear instruction. He says, repent. Faith in God isn't just about changing your mind about him. It's not just about taking on a set of beliefs about who Jesus is. True faith begins with repentance. And not only does John give an instruction, he also gives a reason. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here is why you need to do that. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, another way of saying that is that the kingdom of heaven has come. There is a real sense of urgency in what John is calling his hearers to hear. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is here and you must now respond with repentance. Do you feel the urgency of that? You see, the reality is we don't respond when we don't believe in the urgency. For some people, the catastrophe of global warming will be seen in our lifetime. And if we don't act, then, then uh, we, we will be headed for that catastrophe. And so, as a result, some choose to glue themselves to famous artworks and they choose to stop traffic in order to try and get people to respond. The world is going to burn, they're saying. Can't you people see that? We need to do something. Now, if they're right about the urgency, and I'm not suggesting that they're not, then we should really commend them for following through with what they believe. They see the catastrophe coming. They see the urgency and the need for a response. And so they're trying to call people to that. And we can argue about whether that's how they should be doing it, of course. 
but their courage and conviction should be admired. Brothers and sisters, do you live knowing that the kingdom of heaven has come and that God calls everyone everywhere to repent? Do you see doomsday coming on the horizon and seek to call people to turn to Jesus for salvation? I suspect that for most of us, we find it hard to act in sync with what we profess to believe. And when John says this, he's referring to the coming of Jesus as the one in whom the kingdom of heaven has arrived. This is a once in the history of mankind event. And John recognizes that. How much more for us, for whom the coming of Christ has come and gone. But the coming of the kingdom of heaven means more than just Jesus' coming. It's actually a phrase that is unique to Matthew. You see, in the other Gospels, you'll see the author use the term kingdom of God. And basically, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God mean the same thing. And one of the reasons we know this is because of Matthew's own usage. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say, Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Right? He's making the same point in both sentences, but replaces kingdom of heaven with kingdom of God, indicating they're basically the same thing. But still, what does that mean, right? Now, I'm I'm spending some time on this because as we work through the book of Matthew, this term, kingdom of heaven, will keep coming up. And this is the first time we see it in the book. And the trickiest thing about this idea of the kingdom of heaven is that God uses it in different ways in his word. Sometimes, as we see here in this verse, it seems like it is something that has already arrived. It is here And therefore, you should repent. But at other times, God seems to talk about it as though it's something that is yet to come. That it's on its way still. So in Matthew 25, for example, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven will be like. And then he goes on to tell the parable of the ten virgins. So there is this sense right throughout the Bible that the kingdom of God is something that has arrived in Jesus but it is also something that is yet to come. It's not like the way that we would usually think of kingdoms, you know, with fixed land and borders and a set time. No, no, the Bible talks about the kingdom of heaven as having come in Christ and yet is also going to fully come. The coming of Jesus has made it possible to enter the kingdom of heaven heaven now And one day, that kingdom will be everything. Now, there's there's much more that could be said about that, but hopefully that gives us enough of a working idea. For now, it's important for us to grasp that this is the core message of John, the doomsday preacher. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew now explains to us why John is doing this from verse 3. 
For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Matthew, as he usually does when he helps us with these connections to the Old Testament, makes it very clear that John is this one that Isaiah spoke about, that he prophesied about in Isaiah 40 verse 3. As we read, and as I mentioned earlier, this verse is in the middle of a passage that is anticipating hope for the people of Israel. And even though the immediate context of this verse is is the restoration of, of that nation, their return from exile, if you zoom out in the book of Isaiah, there is an even greater hope that stretches beyond God's restoration of the Israelites. And that's what Matthew is pointing to here. Isaiah 40 verse 3 is talking about a herald. Kids, does anyone know what a herald is? No, that's a, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Yes. Hey? A king. No, good try. But a herald is someone who goes before the king. And he declares, he heralds. To, to, to herald something is to proclaim something. A herald is someone who goes before and announces the coming of the king or others. Notice how in the original verse, God says, prepare the way of the Lord. And then he says to make straight a highway for whom? For our God. We perhaps miss miss this, but Matthew is implying something when he quotes this verse that would have been scandalous for the Jew to hear especially once they figured out that he was referring to Jesus. As we're going to see, the person that John the Baptist is preparing the way for is Jesus. And so for him to imply that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is God, that is radical, to say the least. And of course, we see the way some of the Jews respond when Jesus makes some of these claims more clearly himself. Matthew is already sowing the seeds of Jesus' divinity right here. And it's because of this verse that John's preaching in the wilderness is so important. John didn't choose it because he figured if God was going to, you know, to bless his preaching, well, then I can be anywhere and I'm sure he'll do something with it. No, he's there because he ultimately fulfills Isaiah's prophecy by being this voice, literally in the wilderness. And John is rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. He prepares the way for the Lord by preaching a message of repentance. And not only does he do that, But as we see throughout Jesus' ministry, there's a lot of overlap between their ministries, even to the point of them saying the same thing. I encourage you to go home, look at this passage, read through the things that John says, and then do some searches to see where Jesus says something very similar, if not exactly the same wording. He is preparing the way for the Lord and for his message. For now, Matthew wants us to see who John is, and that brings us to The second movement, be baptized. 
I've mentioned before how Matthew takes these images from the Old Testament and shows how they anticipate an even fuller truth in the New Testament. We have an example of this even in the description of John's clothing. Let's read verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, here's the thing. The description of John here is is probably what you would expect of somebody who is roaming around in the Judean wilderness. Now, kids, would you ever eat locusts? Have you ever tried? Oh, yeah, thumbs up over there. Come on. Have you ever tried locusts? Probably not. I had an opportunity to try crickets once, but I I didn't. I regret that. I should have. What if it was the only thing that you could eat? Would you change your mind then? Probably. Now, it might, it might sound crazy to us, but this was somewhat normal for people to eat locusts in these parts, especially if you were poor. And interestingly, people still eat them today in these regions. But Matthew includes this detail not just to describe generally what John is like, but for another reason. Having preached through some of 1 and 2 Kings, uh, I think it was last year, I read this and I thought, hang on a second, I think I recognize that description. And sure enough, if you look at 2 Kings 1.8, you'll read this about King Ahab's response to a report given to him about a prophet who was causing him some trouble. They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, King Ahab, Ahab, it is Elijah the Tishbite. What are the chances? Well, this tells us even more about who John is. The book of Malachi also prophesies a messenger who would come to prepare the way. And Malachi 4.5 tells us that Elijah would come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Matthew is connecting some of the dots for us. Even in John's clothing, we see who he is. John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. The very one that Malachi prophesied would come. And Jesus himself confirms this later in Matthew 11. If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. That is what he says about John the Baptist. Now, is is John Elijah reincarnated? No. He comes in the spirit of Elijah. The life and ministry of Elijah points forward to the one who would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And he would prepare the way by preaching repentance. And by baptizing. Verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Obviously, word must have gotten out about this guy, right? The wilderness isn't the first place you go looking for good preachers. But word gets around. And listen to that description. Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region went out to him. There's a bit of rhetoric there, but the point is that there were big crowds who came to hear what John had to say. 
Matthew doesn't give us an explanation for why baptism specifically was what John did. You know, why doesn't he just do trust falls or wilderness Passover celebration? Why, Why baptism of all the things? Well, there is a background in the Old Testament of ritual washing for purification. That's probably partly where this came from. And there was a community in the area called the Qumran community, where this practice of ritual cleansing became something similar to baptism, which they did daily. But what John did here was unique. John's baptism wasn't a daily ritual, but seems to have been something that happened once for all. And more significantly, what set John's baptism apart was the reason. What does verse 6 say? They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized confessing their sins. Confession, as as Faith mentioned earlier, is kind of like the first step towards repentance. Just like the first step in Alcoholics Anonymous is admitting you have a problem. The first step in repentance is confessing your sin. This is what baptism is all about. It's interesting that we see John baptizing people in the River Jordan. And even today, you know, you can still go on a tour and get baptized in the River Jordan. Do you know that? People will say, it's the same river that John baptized people in, including Jesus. That's often a selling point for people to go and do these tours and do that. Such a sad practice completely misses the point of baptism. One can only imagine how John himself would react to such a thing. There's nothing special about the River Jordan. You don't get baptized so that you can feel some kind of connection to the water that Jesus himself went down into. No, baptism is an outward sign of an inner reality. And that inner reality is one of confession and repentance. You cannot separate baptism from repentance. And we love our brothers and sisters in Christ who hold fast to the gospel and yet dunk their babies in water. But on this we have a significant disagreement. And this is one of the biggest reasons. You cannot separate baptism from repentance. And you obviously cannot identify repentance in an infant. This is also one of the reasons why Peter says to the crowds in Acts 2, when they asked him what they should do, he said, repent and be baptized. Repentance is an essential part of being baptized. Now, and this is why Presbyterian and Baptist churches remain separate. If baptism and repentance are so intricately intertwined, then to disobey this command is to disobey one of the clearest instructions of Jesus. And that's no small deal. As I've said many times before, we are thankful for and we love our Presbyterian brothers and sisters and pray for them regularly and pray that they would continue to go forth and go strong in preaching the gospel, in holding fast to the gospel. But this is why we don't just close Emmaus Road and all go and join the Presbyterian church. 
You cannot have baptism without confession and repentance. And if you're wondering what the difference is between John's baptism and Christian baptism, the good thing is the Apostle Paul himself answers that for us in Acts chapter 19. He says, when he's asking a crowd of people, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul says to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. John's baptism pointed forward to the one in whom forgiveness of our sins could be found. And that is the baptism that we practice today. So what did John the doomsday preacher come to preach? Repent and be baptized. And friends, John is simply preparing the way for the Lord. Because Jesus would come and preach exactly the same message. The only difference being, believe in me. Yes, he said a whole lot of other stuff, but this was the essence of his message. We'll get to hear it later in Matthew 4, and you can find it in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And to be clear, as the waters of baptism themselves, the inner reality that baptism expresses is both repentance and belief. As Jesus says in Mark 1, repentance and belief are two sides of the same coin of faith. And that is what baptism represents. If you're searching this morning, you're wondering which doomsday message to believe, which one to respond to urgently, this is it. I'm here to tell you that the kingdom of heaven is here, it has come, and it is coming. And when it comes at the end of this age, when Jesus returns, it will come with wrath and fire as God judges sin. And there is only one way to escape it. Repent. Believe. And once you've done that, be baptized. Brothers and sisters, this isn't something that suddenly stops after we've done it the first time. Repenting and believing. It is ongoing. Never tire of doing good. Never tire of turning from sin and turning to Christ. Because in so doing, you secure your salvation and you become more and more like our Lord Jesus. How do you make sure that the first time that you repented and believed was genuine? How do you make sure that you know that that baptism meant and reflected an inner reality? You keep doing it. You don't stop. And that brings us to the third movement in our story, bear fruit. Imagine turning up, <clears throat> imagine turning up to a party and thinking you were going to get a great welcome from the host. And then the host just totally rips into you for something that you did. 
I mean, that, that would be pretty awkward. And you'd feel pretty terrible. But if you deserved it, well, perhaps that's what you needed to hear. That's pretty much what happens in this next section. Let's read verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Okay, before we go in, let's just pause to appreciate what has just happened here. If you read much of the Gospels, you'll know that the Pharisees and Sadducees, they weren't the biggest fans of Jesus. They were two subsets of the Jews who specialized in trying to be more holy than everyone else. That was at least what they were trying to do. Now, Jesus himself calls them out for their hypocrisy several times in his ministry. He even calls them vipers as well. It seems like John could see early on what Jesus would eventually see. It's interesting because Matthew doesn't make it clear as to whether the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to be baptized or if they were just coming to check out what he was doing. We don't know. It doesn't say. But either way, John saw right through their hypocrisy. Kids, does anyone know what a viper is? Yeah, what's a viper? A snake, that's right. A snake. And when you think of snakes, do you think of them as cute, friendly animals? What do you reckon, Connor? No. Are they, are they good or bad usually? Bad. That's right. Bad. <laughs> Misunderstood, says the environmentalists to my left. <laughs> Genesis 3 would disagree with you. <laughs> John doesn't hide what he thinks of these guys. His very first words makes it very clear what he has to say. You hive of snakes, you brood of vipers. And his rhetorical question really cuts through any kind of appearance of piety. Whatever the reason they came out to see John, whether it was to be baptized or to just check out what he was doing, John knew that it wasn't because they were genuinely repentant. That's the problem with them, you see. They had lots of outward appearance of holiness and obedience to God. They had laws on top of laws to make sure they didn't disobey God. But inside, their hearts were dead towards Him. They didn't do it out of any love for God. No, John says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is such an important distinction when it comes to talking about bearing fruit. You see, you can can bear some things in your life that look like fruit. Lots of people I know are loving, joyful, patient, kind, But they aren't that because they've confessed their sin and trusted in Jesus. That's not fruit that is keeping with repentance. That's just a character trait that looks like fruit. And it might look exactly like it. It might look even better than the fruit you've got in your life. Why? 
Why is that not the same as the fruit that comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Because it's not fruit that is born of the Holy Spirit, grown of the Holy Spirit. The difference is not what it looks like on the outside. The difference is the soil from which it springs. You can, you can love someone with the kind of sacrificial, selfless love that the world stands up and pays attention to. And you can be unrepentant about your hatred of other people. You can be thankful and joyful because you count your blessings. And you can be unrepentant about your self-worship. You can be patient because you know it will be better for you in your career or in your family or whatever it might be. And you can be unrepentant about your impatience with your wife or with others. I bet some of these Pharisees and Sadducees, if you observed their lives, I bet they would have looked more religious and righteous than perhaps even most of ours. I bet they probably prayed more, more careful about what they did. Just like the many non-Christians today who do way better in displaying godly attributes than some Christians. Their fruit looks amazing. But they have not been saved from the wrath that is to come. Because the difference is repentance. The one who escapes God's wrath is not the one who manages to be 95% righteous. The one who escapes God's wrath is not the one who manages to look more pious than everybody else. It is the ones who recognize that they will never get to 100% righteousness, which is what is required before a holy God and need Jesus to be righteous on their behalf. That is the one who escapes the wrath of God. And so they repent and they trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins. What separates Holy Spirit fruit and fake fruit is repentance and turning to Jesus. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. As you do that continually, you will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. A fruit tree doesn't just give one crop and then stop. No, it keeps bearing fruit. Year after year, season after season, it continues to bear fruit. Now, let me be clear, brothers and sisters, because I know that most, if not all of us, will at times struggle with seeing that fruit in our lives. In our deepest despair, sometimes we scan the fields of our hearts and our lives looking for fruit. And to us, it looks like a barren wasteland. And we wonder... Where's the fruit? Am I truly saved? Is God really at work bearing fruit in my heart? Now, friends, we ought to ask that question honestly. 
Maybe there is a lack of fruit in your life because there is a lack of repentance and belief. If so, then repent. But it could also very well be that you find it hard to see fruit because you look across the plains of your life and you look right over the top of little sprouts and shoots of fruit-bearing trees. If that is you, do not forget that it takes watering and fertilizer and nurturing and time for a mustard seed to become a great tree. And that your brothers and sisters in Christ help you see it. If your life is not visible enough to them that they would be able to recognize that, or if you're not talking to them about the struggles and sins that you're battling and repenting of, or the sweetness of the fruit that is growing in your life, then let me encourage you to do that. We need one another for encouragement for the journey. And we need one another for rebuke when we need it. Because we can't just rest on our comfy couches. The stakes are far too high. And that takes us to verse 9. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John here connects the wrath that is to come with a tree being chopped down and thrown into the fire. And he makes clear to the Pharisees and Sadducees that just being a descendant of Abraham doesn't make you one of God's children. You don't make it into God's family by blood. And that is still true. Growing up in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. It might make you an Adelaide Crow supporter or a vegetarian, but it won't make you a Christian. We must all, that includes you kids, repent and believe ourselves. And whether John is being literal or rhetorical, he puts an exclamation point on the point by saying that God could even raise up children for Abraham from stones. He doesn't need you. Outward expressions of obedience must be an outworking of a life of inner repentance. The Pharisees and Sadducees had it all together on the outside. Dead on the inside. If the fruit does not spring from repentance, it is false fruit and therefore no fruit. And therefore the tree is cut down. It's an image that sounds a lot like one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams in Daniel 4. And John makes it very clear what the fate of the fruitless tree is. He's not afraid of saying it. Do you see now why I've called him John the Doomsday Preacher? Originally, I was just going to call him John the Preacher. 
But John is not afraid to tell his hearers to turn or burn. Because he knows it's true. Perhaps you squirm at the thought of having to say something like that to your friends. To people you love, to people who think well of you. Maybe you think about these extreme protesters and these alarmists and your natural response is to write them off as quacks and hope that they would just be, stop being so radical. You know, can't, can't they just let, let the rest of us get on with our lives? But if it's true, if it's true that it's not the world that is going to burn, but the very people you know and love, if they don't repent, then why would you not tell them? I'm confident that John was motivated by love as he said these things, just as Jesus was. How might we do the same in our time? Yes, you and I are not the prophet that Isaiah spoke of, nor are we Jesus. But we are still tasked to proclaim the good news, to believe it, to proclaim it. And the gospel carries the same elements of repenting, believing, and being baptized. We proclaim it on this side of the coming of Jesus. And that takes us to our final movement in the passage. In Jesus. Repent, be baptized, bear fruit, in Jesus. It makes sense that if John is preparing the way, we should ask whom he is preparing the way for. And the good thing is John answers that question himself. Kids, who is John preparing the way for? Jesus, that's right. Let's read the rest of our passage. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." John knows that he is simply the guy in charge of clearing the streets to make way for the king. Like all those cars and those motorbikes that drive in front of the king or the queen when royalty comes to town, that's his job. The mightier one was coming. And John recognizes that his baptism of water was one of repentance, but the one who would actually bring forgiveness in response to that repentance was the one who would come after him. Look at what he says there. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Such a great contrast, isn't it? Water and fire. Whenever I play board games or video games that make use of the different elements, I'm always unsure of which one I think is better out of the two. Well, here it's not a question of which is better. The point is that the mightier one comes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
And it's interesting here because John has already talked about the fires of judgment. And then he goes on to say that there is an unquenchable fire of judgment. So if water represents cleansing from sin, then doesn't fire represent judgment? And if so, then the one baptizing with fire, he doesn't sound like that's going to be very fun. Well, it's important to remember that God doesn't use every metaphor or illustration in the Bible the same way. That's why we need to read them in context. And it seems like what God is saying through John here is that the many prophecies which spoke of Jesus' coming using images of water and fire are now coming to pass. To give you a couple of examples, there's Ezekiel 36 and Malachi 3. Where he says, in in promising the coming of the new covenant, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And then in Malachi 3, as he talks about the day of God's coming, who can stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire. All of these images of the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the one who would cleanse, who would refine They are all coming to pass in Jesus. And I think that is confirmed in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers. And what rests on each of them? Tongues of fire. Jesus cleanses and purifies his people. And the Holy Spirit who dwells within them refines them. But Jesus is also the one who brings judgment on those who reject him. The winnowing fork was a tool used by farmers to separate the wheat from the chaff to separate the good part of the grain from the chaff, which is only fit for discarding. And that's what Jesus does. He clears his threshing floor by baptizing his people with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and he forgives the sins of all who repent and believe in him. And he continues to do so. And he gathers up the chaff all those who have rejected him. And he tosses them into the unquenchable fire. Unquenchable. That is a fire that cannot be put out. This is an eternal flame. And it's not the, not the good kind, the romantic kind. It's the unquenchable fire of God's wrath where all who choose to stay on the same track and choose not to repent will spend eternity. Jesus himself uses this image to talk about the place of judgment that we call hell. Mark 9, 43. The unquenchable fire is hell. The kingdom of heaven has come, and it is also coming. 
And when it finally completely comes, when Jesus returns, he will judge the world. His winnowing fork will be in his hands and he will separate the wheat from the chaff. Talk about a sobering way to finish. I hope you've heard the good news of the gospel of salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus throughout this sermon. And whether you're yet to turn to Christ or whether you still struggle with doing so, I hope and pray that you would and that you would continue to. But I want to finish this morning's sermon in the same place that the passage finishes. I hope it's been clear that this is the message that John the Baptist absolutely hammered on about. For us to try and, and, and smother that or to try and quickly sweep it aside because we're uncomfortable with it would be to miss the point. Friends, doomsday is coming. People will laugh at you for believing that. They'll tell you to stop disrupting people from just getting on with and enjoying their lives. They'll tell you that you're unloving and that you are speaking hate by saying such things. They'll tell you that if you fixate on this, then you, you, just, you won't be able to live your life today and enjoy it the way you should. But the reality is that if it is true, then how this story ends changes everything about what we do today. And there is no message more urgent that we need to respond to and that we need to get out as far and as wide as we possibly can. Jesus will either baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire today and purify you daily until the day he comes where he will complete that work. Or he will toss you like chaff into the unquenchable fire of God's wrath. That is true for every single one of us. including the ones that we hold dear. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, we confess that these are hard things to hear. Sometimes they are even hard things to believe. And so we say, Lord, help my unbelief. Help us to Recognize that these are your very words. 
to hold fast to them and to respond accordingly. Lord, keep us from being distracted from the things around us and help us to love our neighbors, to be wise and winsome as we speak. But please, God, we pray, don't let us just pass over this or try and push it aside. But God, give us the courage and the clarity of John as we trust and hold on to you as your spirit bears fruit in us in keeping with repentance. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.